a real pleasure to see you all again. I have desperately, desperately missed fellowship and I have been greatly encouraged and heartwarmed by not just uh, your uh, 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 prayerful uh, support for me and my family, but uh, the practical uh, uh, willingness and desire and action of God's people. Uh, um, there has been, as we sang, what a friend we have in Jesus. Uh, I know that Jesus is my friend uh, because of what he has done for me in my life, but I know even more so he is my friend by he's showing his friendship through his people continually. Uh, I thank you uh, on behalf of myself and my family. Uh, might I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 56. Psalm 56. Psalm 56. <clears throat> Earlier this morning, <clears throat> I uh, flicked on before the morning service, uh, the Sunday, some Sunday school. So I'm looking for some Sunday school stuff on, on uh, YouTube. Uh, it was about 10.30 and I thought, you know what, I haven't really planned this properly. But let me just find something that I can infuse and encourage Ezzy with. And they flicked onto one channel, I can't remember the title of it, but they were having a sort of biblical quiz. And it was, um, you, know, you know how it is, some young adults dressed in bright colours to really encourage the children, all smiling. I don't know why they keep smiling, but they're always smiling. And um, they were just asking some questions and giving us some, uh, some facts of the Bible. And I made a note of some of them because one of them really... Uh, uh, led into what I want to talk about this morning. Firstly, he said the longest, did you know the longest word in the Bible is Mahalashalasabaz. I hope I haven't destroyed that, but it means to hurry to the spoils, and it was a name of one of the uh, folks in the Old Testament. And did you know that in the original language, and should I say languages, if you're considering the Old and the New Testament, if the Bible in its original languages was to be, have the words counted, it would number 611,000 words. Another one, note that, uh, if you, did you know that in 2 Kings, the prophet Elisha at some point is walking uh, through the forest and some kids spot him, about 40 kids, and they start saying to him and calling out to him, hey, hey, baldy. Can you imagine that? Shouting to a prophet of the Lord and calling him baldy. <laughs> and uh, he summons some bears to come out and maul, maul them. So that's a warning to anybody. <laughs> the one, one, last one that really came to me was, uh, uh, it says that in the Bible, and there are over 365 instances where we will find the phrase or a close derivative of the phrase, do not fear. Over 365 instances. And the person in, uh, there sort of concluded that God wants to say every single day, at least once every single day to us, that we ought not to fear. Do not fear. 
In the reading and learning from this psalm this evening, I hope that we may gain holy comfort by realigning our focus in the midst of fear. I'm going to read Psalm 56 in its entirety, and then I'll pray. Please follow with me. Psalm 56, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps. As they've waited for my life, for their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, for God, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Thanks be to God. Gracious Father, thank you, Lord, uh, um, that you can uh, uh, come to us uh, at any point when we call. You can hear us at any point when we cry. And when our fears uh, are seeming to uh, overflow and, 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 and encapsulate us, we can look to you and find comfort, Lord. I pray, Father, as we open your word this evening, that you might uh, bring comfort to the hearts of the people here, to me, and to those who are listening this evening, Lord. May we find courage in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to dive straight in because uh, um, we're left in no doubt of the occasion and the author of this psalm and this hymn. It says there, uh, if you're with a, an ESV translation, as it gives a, a brief introduction of who wrote this psalm and what it's about. To the choir master, according to the dove on far off Terenbiths, a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Those of you who would recall and remember, this psalm comes at a point in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David has been persecuted and been fleeing from King Saul. King Saul, with all his resources, 
is chasing David very earnestly. Earlier on in the chapter, we find that David is spotted by an official as he visits the priest Ahimelech. He requests a sword that he sees there, that the same sword that was used to slay Goliath. David lies about the reason with which he's coming to, uh, to seek Ahimelech and says that he is about the king's business. Now, in relation to the sword, we can obviously understand why David would be, want that sword because he's being pursued by the king. But it's also sad that David uh, has become and to show a, a, a sort of channel of lies. He's lying about being about the king's business. He's desperately actually trying to avoid the king's business because right now the king's business is to find David and bring him in, an end to him. So in fear, David reasons to himself and says, you know what? The king of Israel is chasing me far and wide. Where am I going to hide from him? So he decides, you know what? I'm going to go to the enemies of that king. And he goes to Gath, one of the five cities of the Philistines. He says, you know what? They're his enemies, so obviously that's a place where he's not going to look. I'm going to hide there. And David heads to Gath. Now, obviously, you can remember that the Philistines uh, is where, the Philistine country is where Goliath himself comes from. So immediately, they recognize him. And they're like, wait a minute, aren't you the guy that they were singing songs about? Saul has slain his, his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. That's you. We recognize you. And they hold him captive. And it's in the midst of that, that David writes this psalm. Psalm 56, a multitude are pursuing him with great hate. Wild beasts, as far as he's concerned, with their open mouths to devour their prey, are leaving no stone unturned to destroy him. He clearly sees that in man there is no safety. So rather than look to the right or the left, he looks up. He humbly prays, Lord, be merciful to me. There's mighty power in that cry. God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. Psalm 56 describes David's journey from fear to praising. As a prisoner, he goes from fear to praising. Psalm 56 shows that slide that started on the road from Jonathan, as he spoke with Jonathan about his, uh, the, the reality of the situation between him and Saul, and it continued into Gath. David is now on higher ground. He says, I can no longer stand among the lowly. 
I must look to God. There's a notable difference between David and Saul himself. Both of them slipped. Both of them slid. Both of them did things that are an abomination to the Lord. But in David, we find someone who turns back to the Lord. When confronted with the reality of his sin, he turns back to the Lord. Fear has been something that's been very real and apparent to me in in these last days. I've I've feared different outcomes. As, as, As doctors call and I'm trying to find out information about the circumstances surrounding my mom, her health, her current circumstances, all manner of different fears captivated my mind. Lord, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to my mum. Be merciful to my family. But David says, verse 3, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I really thought about the reality of fear. You know, as a brother uh, came earlier in the week as he was uh, preparing for a meeting, a presentation that he would be delivering at his workplace, and and he he felt the fear, you know. You've often heard people say that, you know, uh, the two greatest fears in man's life is death and public speaking. And actually, public speaking comes before death. Uh, and someone said that, you know, if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than given the eulogy. <laughs> but fear is, is a real thing, and it grips us. Even uh, something as, uh, you know, with all, with all due respect, something as, as minor as giving a presentation at your workplace. to so something as great as the, the prospect of facing death. It got me thinking about the anxiety that fear causes that is apparent in us all. You know, anxiety, sometimes you can see it as, you know, just being, you could just be worried, maybe a bit jittery and shaken. But, you know, anxiety can also look like being irritable. Avoiding real problems. Maybe you might be sleeping a lot. Or maybe you're not sleeping enough. You find yourself unable to concentrate at work. Unable to concentrate in church. You find yourself overworking. Doing more than you're physically capable of doing. There's the physical um, pains that come, over-planning things, overthinking, rethinking, needing constant, constant reassurance. These are all symptoms of the anxiety that comes from fear. And these natural feelings have a, a deep root and they will continue to spring up, even in the most enlightened hearts. 
David looked around and he saw enemies surrounding him. Saul behind him threatening. The Philistines encamped in front. And once you look at those things that can cause any man to be timid, those tremblings of fear to arise, those butterflies that come in your stomach. But David, out of the, the lowest of depths, he looked above. He looked above and he saw the light of life. And his heart responded, I'm afraid. I'm really afraid right now. But I will trust in God. God was his confidence. God's word was the strong foundation on which his heart was fixed. As David realizes his oneness with God, he felt that all God's promises, all God's promises were an unfailing heritage. He couldn't be shaken because he knows that what God has said will always come to pass. Blessed is the man who can cry and still say, in God I will praise. In God I will continue to trust. Praising in the midst of, of fear. Again, you know, I have no doubt that, that the Lord Jesus has taken me through these seasons for his intended purpose. Learning how to praise in the midst of fear and worry has always been something that I could, you know, stand from a distance and, you know, encourage someone else. I'll join you in praising all the time. But praising and, and there's something to be, to, I'll be there with you. But to be really there, there myself has been a, a, a learning experience that I never, ever wanted to go through. Now, up until this point, I can tell you with 100% I've never been to a funeral. I've never been to a funeral. Not that people haven't died. My, my grandparents have always passed away. But I've never been to one. Well, how am I going to be able to comfort those when they need comforting if I haven't had some taste of what it means to need to be comforted? As I began by saying, for us to realign our focus in the midst of fear, that's the important thing. You know, I, I don't know if anyone watches um, uh, um, the show Cobra Kai. Basically, it's uh, uh, focused on the, the old story of Karate Kid. Remember Karate Kid from back in the 80s? Uh, um, basically, the, the two main characters um, have become older men now with families and dysfunctional families at that. Um, I won't go into the whole story, but basically the last season, uh, the second season, sorry, ends very destructively. You know, there's a real bad accident and uh, involves, you know, kids being at a school, having a, basically a karate fight in the midst of school. It was, it was so strange. But they're fighting and then a bad accident happens. And, um, one of the main characters, she, she obviously, she's part of it, and she feels responsible for it 
So much so that she begins to have these anxiety attacks in the third season as she confronts one, those people who were fighting against her, and she relives the circumstances and the destruction that that fight caused. And her father, who, Daniel LaRusso, who you know is the, the main guy in Karate Kid, he's, he's saying, you know, get back into karate. You love it. And she says, I'm afraid. I can't, whenever I think about just doing karate, I just relive that moment, that experience in my mind. But you wouldn't know anything about that, Dad. You know, you're, you're, you're an old man, you're, 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 you've got family. You, you don't know what it is as a young person to feel fear. And he's like, yes. And it harkens back to uh, uh, Karate Kid uh, number two, when Daniel LaRusso is in his third fight, he's there, he's on the canvas, and he's saying to Mr. Miyagi, I can't do it, I'm afraid. That's it, I'm gonna tell you, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And you see Mr. Miyagi there, he says, Daniel, focus. He says, focus. And obviously it goes on to win the fight. Focus. What do we as Christians focus on when we're in fear? The writer of Hebrews is clearly steeped in Old Testament history. He's very much bathed in it. Pardon me, I'm using uh, the masculine phrases here. If anyone has any arguments as to who the author of Hebrews is, we can discuss that later. But I've heard some scholars refer to Hebrews as an actual sermon given to people who were fearful. Professing to be a Christian in that time was dangerous, punishable by death. And they reasoned amongst themselves that, well, we ought to return to Judaism. You know, being a professing Jew, you know, the, the, the Romans, they allowed us our space. We could practice it in peace. Becoming a Christian and calling, professing the name of this, this fisherman, Jesus Christ, is having people being killed, tortured. But we don't want none of that. We, we, we'd probably be best off going. And after 10 chapters of the writer saying, why would you do that? Jesus is much more greater than any of that. He's greater than temple, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than Abraham, he's greater than the law, he's greater than all of that. He then says, look at this, you know? He says, chapter 11, and he just starts to detail all these figures in history, Abel, Abraham, Moses. Hebrews chapter 11, he says, verse 37, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. And apart from us, they should not be made perfect. 
So they, they've understood the motto, I shall not be afraid, what can man do to me? They have persisted in faith in the midst of what's going on around them. There's a lot to be fearful of, to be a prophet and proclaim, you know what, today the Lord's judgment is going to come upon you. Turn from your ways as Jeremiah, as Isaiah, as, as all the prophets have done in the past. That's a dangerous thing. To go out on Wood Green High Road and proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a dangerous thing. But in speaking of the history, uh, the writer of Hebrews then goes into chapter 12 and says, Therefore, all of us who are reading, you and us, since we are surrounded by all this cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside the weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And this is our focus. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. When our lives are falling apart, when, when we're faced with the fear of having to do something that takes us out of our comfort zone. We ought to look to Jesus. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Focus on who he is, how he is our savior, our redeemer, our comforter, our living hope, our rock, our friend. Begin with him in the day. I know that the day is always, and it's always, I don't know why I forget it, but my day is always smoother when I begin the day with Jesus Christ, without a shadow of a doubt. But something tells me, you know what, after a little while, I can do it on my own. And that's when I find myself dipping. Focus on who you are in Jesus Christ. We are his children, we are loved, we are a royal priesthood. Soak yourself in Jesus Christ. The more you see the beauty of his face, everything else will pale by comparison. Focus on his promises. He will never leave us, nor forsake us. That's what David saw. He focused on God, on God's promises. He was looking for the promise that was coming. Verse 5 to 7, uh, David continues, All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You see, the constant effort for godly people to walk without reproach in the sight of, of man continually sometimes fails to secure success. Now, when we utter words in a loving spirit, that can often be misconstrued as being pious 
but we can often be slandered. There's something here of David saying that they have taken his words and injure his cause. Isn't that apparent today? You say you're anti-abortion. And people will twist that and say that Christians only care about the unborn. They don't care about mothers. They don't care about, they just care about the unborn. That's why they're constantly going on about it. Nothing could be further from the truth. You say that we won't close these doors because coming to church is more than just attending a venue. The church of Jesus Christ is a light in the darkness. And they'll say, oh no, obviously you're some sort of anarchist. You're being purposely disobedient to the, to the law of the land. Some churches have felt that they need to close their doors. And that's a decision that they've made in Christ of themselves. And they'll twist that and say, oh, these Christians, they obviously have no backbone. Providing a false testimony, injuring their cause. And we're not alone in this. We instantly remember the Lord Jesus Christ and the false witnesses that were placed upon him. Shall they escape? Will not God's wrath fall upon them? David is telling truths that ought to ring true in our own hearts. Especially as we proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, as we focus on Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a reminder for us to call others to do the same. Even as they slander us, even as they take the name of Jesus Christ and trample it underfoot, our only call by our king and captain is to take the gospel out into the world. And verse 8, as we see, we're just walking through it this evening. Um, I know that's somewhere that I stayed for a bit. Uh, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You know, um, that, that Friday, as you know, we, we gathered to pray, and I was literally setting up the Zoom meeting for the evening, and my sister calls, and, and she's crying on the other end, uh, uh, saying that they've told us to come. They've told us that, you know, it's looking precarious. That the policy is that, you know, as the doctors have deemed this to be slipping down, that they need the family to come for their last bits. And seeing my, my, my wife and my mother-in-law uh, uh, just break down. And we get to the hospital and by God's grace, uh, uh, um, we... we, we, we 
hear that there, that there is some improvement. Not, there isn't a finality to this. As we stand and pray, myself, Ryan, and my family, the tears are continuing to overflow. I can't, I can't comfort my sister. No. Um, you know, my, something that she said to me, that my, myself and my other sister who have begun families, we've moved out of the house, and, uh, uh, and my, my younger brother who is currently in hospital at the moment, it's my younger sister who's at home with my parents. She has the deep relationship with my mum. And she's like, she's saying, I don't know what to do. You know, mum is, you know, she says, she says to me, Charles, you've got Noma. Obi, my sister, she's got Jude, my brother-in-law. You know, she says the words, mum is my person. I'm sitting there with her and I'm thankful to God that even though, you know, you, when you're sitting with someone that is grieving, your question, do I, do I, you know, do I go into a sermon now? Is that is now the time to start preaching? It might not be, but there's words at that time, words of comfort, words of grace, because I'm reminded that God keeps account of my tears. She felt alone. She can resonate with David's feeling right now. David is alone until he comes to the cave in Agilum in 1 Samuel chapter 22, where his family come and meet him. He's alone. And he said he feels the loneliness and the care of God is an immense comfort to him at that time. The reason for our hope in God's justice lies in his divine nature and his promises to vindicate his children. He keeps account of our tears. He loves us. He goes on to say, uh, uh, in God, uh, I trust. In God, sorry, verse 10, in God whose word I praise. My mistake, verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, for God is for me. This was the ground of David's confidence, that God is for him. His wanderings and his tears did not mean that God was against him. That's a radical truth. People who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ can come to the conclusion that the reason I'm suffering is because God is against me. That's a lie from the devil. That's a lie from the evil one who puts that in our minds, in the minds of people who don't know Jesus Christ. That, oh, everything's against me. And chiefly that God must be against you. But for us, for David, and for us, we know that that is a bull-faced lie. God is for you. If you are in Jesus Christ, God is for you. We know that Paul echoes 
that triumphant phrase in uh, Romans chapter 8, as he says, what can man do to me if God is for me? Who can be against us? Our focus isn't on anything that can be shaken, isn't on anything that can be here tomorrow and gone, uh, here today and gone tomorrow. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Faith is faith in him. Our focus is in Jesus Christ. If we focus on anything else, there is cause to lose hope. The brother who is, is, is wondering about his, the way of his rhetoric, just imagine he does one day, you know, be able to proclaim without feeling anxious, without stuttering, and he overcomes that. Does it mean that tomorrow there won't be another challenge to overcome? Maybe he might not have the right words. He might not have the specific rhetoric. He might be offered another position to go higher. Oh, there's another thing to fear. If our faith is in anything that we can look to in and amongst ourselves or in ourselves, we will find failure eventually. But in Jesus Christ, we have an assurance in someone who will never be shaken, who will never fail us and will always deliver. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Paul, um, sorry, David goes on to say there in, uh, which I found very uh, wonderful as he was talking, I must perform, from verse 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of life. I admit to you, I've, I've made a couple of vows in the deep recesses of my heart, and I'll keep them between me and God, but if I was to look for a biblical foundation for those vows, I would struggle to find them. Some promise, oh God, if you, if you do this, I would... In days of trouble, vows are often some sort of thing that we'll go to for some merciful deliverance. But let our vows be fully paid. He who died to save the soul from certain death will never permit the soul to perish because of the vows that he has made to us. The Lord, the Father has placed us in the Lord Jesus Christ's hand and he's promised he's never gonna lose, not even one. So sure is he of our deliverance that even David himself can talk about vows that are to come. I found this, how, how David uh, will often talk about, I say often, but I remember in, uh, in the back end of Psalm 51, about how the Lord does not delight in burnt offerings. But he then goes on to say that we will then give you thanksgiving and offerings in the end anyway. David is the type to say that 
I will render praise to you. The praise will come. The offerings and the burnt offerings will come because I know that you will deliver me. And I got, you know, it got me thinking, thinking about that, especially that, that word, that, that phrase right at the end there, in the light of life. That I may walk with God. That I may walk with God in the land of the living, in the light of his word. Have I looked, you know, for that, that phrase, in the light of life, as sort of come to, to an end? Uh, I remember where, where, where I'd seen it. It was obviously rec uh, mentioned to me as I was looking through my ESV uh, study Bible, in the light of life. And uh, it, it's, it's a phrase that the Lord Jesus Christ uses in, in John chapter 8. Uh, John chapter 8, we, we see the, uh, the woman that is uh, caught in adultery. And uh, why don't we turn there to John chapter 8. Uh, the woman who is, uh, she's caught in adultery. As far as the letter of the law is concerned, she ought to be punished and stoned to death. Reading from John chapter 8, verse 9. But when they heard of it, this is the crowd surrounding, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Those, those men, those people that seek to condemn you, those things that you fear that surround you, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And in verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I surmise that David, under the uh, Mosaic law, knew of the sacrifices and offerings that he would have to make thank offerings for what God has done. But in Jesus Christ, we see all of that fulfilled. There is nothing that man can do that can separate us one from his love or condemn us in a way that Jesus has released us from that condemnation. The fact that Jesus used that last word in, in, in verse 13, uh, verse 13 of uh, um, Psalm 56 in 8.12 makes us think that the light of deliverance that Jesus brings in those who trust him 
And the light that that gives is the salvation by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, there is much for us to fear in this world. There's much for us to be anxious about. But because of Jesus Christ, he has removed the fear that can cripple us and cause us to turn back and cause us to, to, to wander away. When we focus on Jesus, when we look and turn our eyes to him, everything else pales in comparison. I thank God that these last weeks, two weeks, have been a cause to remember all that Jesus has done and continues to do and will do for me. And I want to encourage and remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ is gracious, he's merciful, and he loves you. If we turn our eyes to him, we'll have nothing to fear. Let me pray for you. Father Lord, um, I know only too well uh, uh, what, it, what it means to, to, to fear, what it feels like to look around and, and see no hope. As, as, as David was surrounded by enemies, we today uh, may not be surrounded by uh, 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 chariots and armies seeking to destroy our, our flesh and, and, and kill us. But we are surrounded by those principalities, those things and, 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 and those powers that seek to devour us and to make us to feel shame and fear and inadequacy. Father, help us that we might look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And in him, we will find forgiveness, peace, and a friend. I pray, Lord, for anyone listening who is fearful of something or someone right now, may you, Lord Jesus Christ, meet them and provide them with the comfort that they need. May they not be so taken over by their fear that they have cause not to look to your beautiful face. May they find in Jesus the same thing that has been in him before the foundation of the world. Beauty, perfection, and love. Help us, Father, we pray. In the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.